The success of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, during which 27 million people visited Chicago in a six-month period, showed there was great interest in outdoor entertainment. Keep in mind, according to the U.S. Census of 1890, there were approximately 1.1 million people in Chicago at the time, and only around 63 million people in the entire country. Just a few years later, and one mile west of the southern point of the World's Fair, a new entertainment venue would open, the likes of which Chicago and most of the country had not seen before. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. This is the story of Sanssouci and Midway Gardens. In researching the recent episode about the Eastland disaster I read about and became intrigued by one of the subjects of today's episode. It really is part of the joy of doing this. I get to learn about new, well, I guess old, but new to me, stuff while sharing it with you. After the end of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, Chicagoans were still abuzz about what they saw, especially with that of the Midway Pleasants, a mile-long mix of entertainment and food on the southern part of the fair. For years after, performers tried to recreate some of the sights and sounds from the World's Fair. According to the March 29, 1897 Chicago Tribune, the Swedish Carnival planned to reproduce the Pleasants with music from the Old Turkish Theater, food from Old Vienna, and the Japanese Japanese tea garden and Persian and Chinese booths, among other things, all popular attractions at the World's Fair. The article went on to say that several hundred men and women will take part and that most would be in costume. Now that Chicagoans got a taste of the world, even if it wasn't always culturally accurate, they wanted more. They wanted to be entertained. In the April 13, 1899 issue of the Dixon, Illinois Evening Telegraph newspaper, a story ran that claimed that after a year's labor and a total investment of half a million dollars, that's a little more than $15.5 million in today's money, a new amusement park would open May 20th of that year at 61st Street and Cottage Grove Avenue. According to the article, the owner, W.H. Carter, had made a study of all the leading parks in America and Europe, and this park, called Sanssouci, would surpass anything in the country as an amusement resort. The park would cover 10 acres, laid out with walks, lawn, shrubbery, flowers, and, of course, entertainment. One of the big features of the park, owing to the recent achievements of electrical science, was to be the electric fountain, throwing water in different ways, kind of like an old-timey Las Vegas Bellagio fountain, gigantic pinwheels, ribbon effects, sheaves of grain, and a 200-foot geyser. This fountain would consume 30,000 gallons of water per minute, and operating it for just 15 minutes would cost over $50. That's about $1,500 in today's money in electricity alone. Keep in mind, Chicago was still primarily lit by gaslighting at the time. It was only six years before, on May 1st, 1893, at the Chicago World's Fair, that President Grover Cleveland pushed a button that lit nearly 100,000 Westinghouse alternating current incandescent lamps illuminating the fair. There was even an electricity building at the World Fair to demonstrate how electricity would change the lives of those across the nation. Anything promotional using the word electricity would likely have been met with wide-eyed fascination by the public. Sanssouci would also have an area called the Casino, a building over 200 feet long with a theater on one end with a stage for, and I'm quoting here, high-class entertainments. 
with an S. In July, visitors could expect opera. An elegant cafe would occupy part of the building where, quote, the inner man may be refreshed in first-class style at reasonable prices. Honestly, this article reads more like a press release than news, but it would have had me hooked. But wait, there's more. W.G. Ewell would conduct a 35-piece band daily. The Japanese Tea Garden, presented by the Central Tea Association of Japan and subsidized by the Japanese government, again, according to the news article slash press release, would include two buildings and give, and I'll quote the article here, employment to 25 Japanese, part of whom are the geisha girls, world famous as Japanese entertainers. The entrance to the park at 60th Street and Cottage Grove Avenue looked like a German beer hall, carried over from a place called Old Vienna, which was based on the grounds. This is something that would have likely appealed greatly to the large German population of Chicago in 1899, especially the ones homesick for a taste of their former country. According to an article in the Clinton Public Newspaper out of Clinton, Illinois, more than 13,400 persons passed through the turnstile on day one to see the hundred-odd attractions and Mammoth Fountain. The article went on to predict that within a few years, many parks of its caliber would be found in large cities. The first few years were good. Newspapers of the day carried many, many ads promoting the venue and its performers, daring high divers, trick bicyclists, a foot juggler named Vanola, trained horses, monkey comedians, truly something for everyone. The public loved Sanssouci. In 1905, less than a mile southwest of Sanssouci, White City opened on 14 acres of what was formerly a cornfield at 63rd Street and South Parkway, now known as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. This competition put pressure on Sanssouci to keep visitors coming through the doors. In an October issue of Billboard magazine that same year, it was reported that Sanssouci would undergo a $2 million remodeling, more than $58.5 million in today's money. Between 1906 and 1912, new rides and other attractions were added to the park, including a roller skating rink, a vaudeville theater, and two roller coasters, one called the Velvet Coaster and the other the Aerial Subway. Uh, they also added a ballroom and more. On Sunday, August 11th, 1907, the Tribune ran a column promoting an event taking place the following Tuesday, during which the entire proceeds from the sale of admission tickets to the park and 50% of the gross receipts, that's half a nickel of every dime, from six of the feature attractions of the amusement park would be donated to two of the Chicago Tribune's hot weather charities. As refrigeration was still done by having blocks of ice delivered to homes to be kept in an ice box, the Tribune sponsored charities at the time to provide ice to those less fortunate to, quote, keep their baby's milk sweet and cool, end quote, and sent sick babies and their ailing mothers to the Tribune Hospital, first based in Glen Ellen, Illinois, which opened in July of 1905, before moving to Algonquin, Illinois, at a 20-acre camp along the Fox River. Camp Algonquin is only one of four camps built in the U.S. during the Fresh Air in the Country movement, which started during the late 1800s to combat the rise in respiratory ailments like tuberculosis. This movement was brought about based on the belief that spending time in a rural environment would help relieve the problems caused by inner-city living. 
Even with all the money spent on the facilities and advertising, the goodwill built through charity efforts and everything else they tried, Sanssouci's appeal started to fade, and the owners decided to sell off the entire property in 1913 to two men, Edward Waller and Oscar J. Friedman, who also leased the land for 99 years. There was talk about making the land more residential by building a large store and an apartment building or two, but that would have cost money, something the new owners didn't appear to have. Waller and Friedman went about making changes, taking out many of the rides that made the park family-friendly, and resumed operations for the 1913 season. Reviews were good, attendance was not. After one season, with funds dwindling and bad press, two men sued the owners of Sanssouci, claiming their waitstaff beat them up, breaking one of their legs. And a tango teacher named Millie Allison Rex wrote, who worked at Sanssouci, was murdered by a notorious killer named Henry Spencer in a case covered succinctly in John Seidel's 2019 book, Second City Sinners. If you're a fan of true murder stories from Chicago, this is the book for you. I'll have a link for that in the show's notes. American architect Frank Lloyd Wright had been dealing with a damaged reputation since 1909 when he ran off to Europe with Mary Borthwick Cheney. Mama Borthwick Cheney left her husband and two children to be with Wright, and Wright left his wife and six children to be with her. This caused quite a scandal and bad press for Wright. Wright and Borthwick eventually returned to the States and settled in Spring Green, Wisconsin, where he built Taliesin a home and studio not far from where he grew up. In the fall of 1913, Wright was brought to Chicago to have a meeting with Ed Waller, who was still trying to make a success of the property, formerly known as Sansosi. According to Frank Lloyd Wright in Autobiography, Wright recalls Waller saying, Frank, in all this old black town, there's no place to go but out, nor any place to come but back that isn't bare and ugly unless it's cheap and nasty. I want to put a garden in this wilderness of smoky dens, car tracks, and saloons. Waller went on to say, I believe Chicago would appreciate a beautiful garden resort. Our people would go there, listen to good music, eat and drink. You know, an outdoor garden, something like those little parks around Munich where the German families go. Waller imagined a dance floor inside and a big place outside where the highbrows, as he called them, could listen to a concert. Live music, matinees, colors, light, movement, and he knew just the place, Sansosi. Wright was on board. Around the end of January 1914, Waller put a crew together with a goal to have Midway Gardens, as it would be called, open in 90 days, May 1st, 1914. One slight problem, the owners had only managed to raise 65000 of the roughly 350000 that was needed. Frank Lloyd Wright brought his son John Lloyd Wright, his second child with whom he had an on-again, off-again relationship, to Chicago to help run the operations. The younger Wright introduced his father to a sculptor he had befriended in Los Angeles named Alfonso Ianelli. Wright was impressed with Ianelli, and they got to work. Wright roughed out some sketches of these sprites, as they were called, and handed them off to his team. Wright's rough sketches were in good hands with Ianelli, who worked with the model to fully realize the sprites. The terraces and outer walls of the gardens would have 54 concrete castings of just four different figures, the aforementioned sprites, 
Of those, four smiled as they cast sideways glances. Four counterparts looked downward as if contemplating something. Six of the figures, called the Queen of the Garden, were winged, holding a cube overhead. There was also a male figure with short, outstretched arms. More sculptures were scattered throughout the interior of the Winter Garden, both male and female, handing geometric shapes, a sphere, a cube, a tetrahedron, and a dodecahedron. Wright, who normally did not allow anything even bordering on erotic, appeared not to mind the nude figure holding a large sphere high above her head. Wright also designed an acoustic band shell that could be adjusted if the crowds to the side of the stage grew too large. Although unfinished, according to Wright, as many of the decorations weren't completed and a few pieces were still missing, Midway Gardens held a pre-opening on July 20th, 1914, followed by a formal opening a week later. Women in gowns, men in tuxedos, all filling the venue on warm summer nights with two concerts nightly, one from 6 to 8 p.m. for the dinner crowd and one 9 to 11 p.m. performed by Max Bendix and the National Symphony Orchestra. According to Wright in his autobiography, quote, Chicago marveled, exclaimed, approved. There was even a garden club, which had a separate parking area and entrance for members. August 1st, 1914, Germany declares war on Russia. Although America was not part of that conflict until April 6, 1917, the effects in 1914 were soon felt, especially for a place that had such a strong German connection. In August 1914, Wright was called back to Wisconsin. A mentally unstable servant had murdered seven people and set fire to Taliesin. That destroyed the living quarters, which made up one-third of the house. Among the seven dead was Mema Borthwick and her two children, eight-year-old Martha and ten-year-old John. Wright later rebuilt Taliesin and found love again before year's end with a woman who had sent him a condolence letter. Midway Gardens' season opening in 1915 got off to a rough start when the original opening day was canceled due to pouring rain. On July 3, 1915, Anna Pavlova, the wildly popular Russian prima ballerina, began a four-week engagement at Midway Gardens. Her first night's attendance was 4,500 people. On July 6, 1915, four robbers overpowered two guards and blew up a safe, making off with what was later determined to be $15,000, more than $382,000 today. A truly horrible thing to have happened to a company struggling to pay its bills. The insurance company later refused to pay out on the claim, due to suspicious circumstances, most notably that $22,500 was due at the time to the builders of Midway Gardens. Anna Pavlova's July 30th, 1915 performance with Mrs. Potter Palmer in the audience was a benefit for the victims of the Eastland disaster, a tragedy in which 844 people, including 22 entire families, died when their excursion ship tipped over while docked in the Chicago River less than a week before. Their efforts and contributions from band leader Max Bendix and the National Symphony Orchestra generated about one quarter of the Tribune's fundraising take for the day. In late summer 1915, while still owing creditors half of what was agreed upon and without the necessary funds to maintain the venue, 
The team behind Midway Gardens declared bankruptcy. By June of 1916, the Edelweiss Gardens, the same name as a beer garden at Cottage Grove and 51st Street that had been closed in a reform wave by the authorities some years ago, was ready to open but not without difficulty. Local aldermen and church groups opposed the opening. This was, after all, during the heyday of temperance leagues like the Anti-Saloon League and just a few years before Prohibition. On June 27, 1916, Edelweiss Gardens opened its doors, but without music or food, as they had not secured either license. They had, however, secured a saloon license, which allowed them to serve beer. They eventually gained all necessary licenses, but crowds were still thin. When the U.S. finally entered World War I, followed by Prohibition, the writing was on the wall for the venue that had gone by Sanssouci, Midway Gardens, and Edelweiss Gardens. The property changed hands once again, and the new owners decided to paint over and even tear down much of what Frank Lloyd Wright had built just a few years before in order to build a new dance hall. But owing to the construction involved, the demolition company lost more completing the task than they had made, something that likely brought Wright some satisfaction. In October 1929, the venue was once again closed and demolished. The sprites from Midway Gardens were long thought to be lost, but in the late 1940s, some were found on a farm in Wisconsin. For the next 20 years, three of the restored sprites could be seen at a Wright-designed home in Stillwater, Minnesota. In 1985, Taliesin Associated Architects donated the sprites to the Biltmore Hotel and Spa in Phoenix, Arizona, not far from Taliesin West, Wright's winter home and school. Alfonso Ianelli, who felt like he never got the credit he deserved for helping create the sprites at Midway Gardens, eventually settled in Park Ridge, Illinois, where he designed the amazing interiors at the Pickwick Theater, the Mary Sculpture at the entrance of the Immaculata Girls High School on Irving Park Road near Marine Drive, and the Rock of Gibraltar Relief on the Prudential Building in Chicago. The 2016 book Park Ridge Milestones of History, written by Milton E. Nelson, features on the cover a picture of Ian Ellie and an exterior shot of the Pickwick. On the land at 60th and Cottage Grove Avenue, there is now a large apartment building built post-World War II. There's also a jewel food store nearby and a post office. Less than a mile away stands the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed Roby House on the campus of the University of Chicago. I will be posting pictures of Sanssouci, Midway Gardens, ads from back in the day, and many other fun tidbits from this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. Check it out and give us a like, please. Also, please let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed today. If you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks to my overseas listener, Rich, for last week's suggestion. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. 
Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.